0: This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys, and epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at nissanusa.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. I'm Aaron Miller, I'm a travel writer, And this episode, we are going to be fighting monks on a mountaintop in a Japanese temple, and I'm not even joking. We are about to trek the entire 750-mile Shikoko pilgrimage. It's one of the toughest, oldest, and most beautiful Buddhist pilgrimages in the world. Are you ready to get your kung fu on? Yeah, me too. Let's go. Taking us on this adventure is travel author and black belt karate hardknot, Paul Barrick. His book of this story is called Fighting Monks and Burning Mountains, Misadventures on a Buddhist Pilgrimage. And yep, he did have a few. We're going to hear about that. It's hilarious. He's hilarious. He's actually done a bit of stand up before and you can tell. So we're going to have some serious fun, but we're also going to learn a thing or two. I think this part of the world is one of the most amazing places I've ever been to for a start. But also, Paul learned some pretty cool things on this trip about himself, about Buddhism, about the dangers of wild boars, toilet stalls, and the do's and don'ts of leaping off temple walls. Oh, yes, more of that later. So, if you do enjoy this episode, please check out the book and connect with Paul. His Instagram is at Barrack Outdoors. That's B A R A C H Outdoors. As well as this trek, he's also done a bunch of other long distance treks and other adventures. He posts great imagery and he's just a fun guy to travel and hang out with. I'll link to the book on the episode page of the website or just search it up on Amazon. It's called Fighting Monks and Burning Mountains, Misadventures on a Buddhist Pilgrimage. It's available on ebook, audiobook, and print, and it's a really fun read. Finally, and as always, please remember if you like what you hear, hit that follow and subscribe button, tell a friend, leave a glowing five-star review. It really does make a huge difference and it helps our message of love for the outdoors respect for other cultures and the pure joy of exploring this amazing planet grow if you share those values if you think that's a message worth spreading then tell a friend a fellow explorer or just someone who needs an escape the social media is at armchair explorer podcast across instagram and facebook the website is armchair-explorer.com where you can sign up for the newsletter book trips inspired by the show And of course, find background photos, videos, and lots more about each episode. But don't worry about that right now, because we're just about to embark upon a Buddhist pilgrimage through the mountains and cedar forests of
1: Shikoko Island. But first, ninjas. The fascination with ninjas started when I was around like four years old because I'm a late millennial and they were all over Saturday morning cartoons. They lived in sewers eating pizza. They teamed up with G.I. Joe. Batman had to fight them on a frequent basis. So just it imprinted into my mind that like, oh my God, they're these black clad assassins that can like run up walls and got throwing stars and can throw down smoke bombs and disappear. Where do they come from? How can I see one?
0: And the answer, of course, is Japan. That's where they come from. Seeing one is sadly unlikely. Or maybe they're just hiding. Stealth, after all, is what the ninja is all about. But from ninjas, Paul's interest in Japan just grew and grew. He got into Zen Buddhism, martial arts, and the idea of Japan just blossomed in his imagination and became this magical, fantastical place the source of so many of his passions and interests. And then serendipity took a turn.
1: When I got to college, I took a class in Japanese religion and culture because I was thinking like, eh, at least a week on ninjas, so I'll get a solid B plus in this class. And it turned out, no, uh, I was about real stuff. So I'm kind of tuning it out because it's a lot of like, you know, just ancient history and things but then this one day the professor puts on this vhs documentary about this ancient pilgrimage that walks 750 miles around japan's most rural island then visits these 88 temples and so i'm just watching the screen and i'm watching this man dressed in a white robe with his walking stick and with his sedge hat passing through these you know idyllic rice fields bordered by mountains meditating under waterfalls and praying at these ancient temples. And in kind of a flash, I just see myself there, walking by those rice fields, meditating under those waterfalls. And I think, I think I'm going to do that. And then it disappeared. And I didn't think about it really for eight years as I graduated and started working in an office until I'd worked my way up to... What would be a good job? And I just hated it. I just hated sitting there and thought, you know, like, okay, well, I'm 28. So I got to do the right thing and settle. And then the second later, I thought, okay, well, you know what? If you're going to settle, you need to do like one more thing, one more big thing. And I was thinking, what can I do? And then that vision flashed back and I thought, I am going to do the Shikoku Pilgrimage. I'd, you know, studied karate for four years and was training up for my black belt. I was like, oh, man, maybe I'm going to meet a priest and have a kung fu battle on the top of a mountain like in the movies. Or maybe I'll achieve enlightenment uh, while walking by the rice fields because I'm going to meditate every day and while I'm walking and maybe a wizened old man will walk out from the woods and hand me a sword and say, you are ready. And I did not think I am going to prepare for doing the Shikoku pilgrimage. I am going to learn to read a map. I am going to find out if my shoes fit correctly. I am going to learn Japanese. I am going to do any research whatsoever none of those. I just said, I am going to go. And then a year later, landed in Shikoku. Shikoku
0: is the smallest of Japan's four main islands and one of the wildest and most beautiful too. It has its own distinctive culture, food, art. There's amazing hiking, biking, remote beaches, and of course, Japan's most famous pilgrimage, the Shikoku pilgrimage, which we're just about to embark upon. Dedicated to the 8th century Japanese saint and holy man Kobo Dayashi or Kukai, as he was known after he became enlightened, it is said that he attained enlightenment in a cave, Cape Maroto, which the pilgrimage actually passes by, meditating on where the sky meets the sea. Today, you are not required to sit in a cave for three years, but you are required to visit each of the 88 temples that are spread out around the island, reciting prayers to Kukai at each one. There are four sections of the route in total, which is traditionally walked clockwise. The whole thing is actually circular, one of the few pilgrimages in the world that's like that. The first section is Tokushima, the land of awakening faith. Next is Kochi, the land of ascetic training. Then Ahime, the land of enlightenment. And finally, Kagawa, the land of nirvana. Most modern day pilgrims take cars and even coach tours to complete it in a week or two. Which I guess is kind of fair enough, and also kind of missing the point, perhaps. But not Paul. He would be walking the entire 750-mile path on foot, as had been done for centuries before him, sleeping out in little rest huts or camping in fields or temple courtyards along the way. Like Kukai, he was seeking his own kind of enlightenment. He was seeking answers, insight and wisdom. And if he was very lucky, ninjas too. That didn't happen, I'm sorry. No wizened old man came out of the woods and gave him a sword. But he did
1: come pretty damn close. So as I leave the first temple, I've transformed myself. I'm wearing the white pilgrim's vest. I have the sedge hat, the walking staff, and I'm just not sure what's ahead of me, but I am so excited to find out because I am going into not a city, not a planned tourist thing. I'm walking into rural Japan. I'm going to see what Japan looks like now, and also, hopefully, what Japan used to look like. You know, the, the romanticized, waving rice fields, people in traditional dress the cranes stalking through the ponds. All of these things that I'd seen in the backgrounds of movies and anime, and I'm hoping that it's real in a way, that there is a chance to see this thing that i would romanticized in my head. I'm also thinking, wow, it is a lot hotter than I expected, and I have not stopped sweating since I arrived. And as I start walking, I've got my walking stick just ticking off the ground like a metronome. There are these beautiful temples with statues of Shinto gods and Buddhist demigods that are all just exactly what you'd hope, like both new and yet ancient and unchanged in the past thousand years. years—and. So I walk for the first five temples, and then I'm absolutely wiped, and I'm starting to look for a place to sleep because I'm carrying a tent, I'm on a very strict budget, and then I turn a corner and run into a mama boar with her two little piglets. And you would think boars are awesome because they're made of bacon, but their mouths are filled with knives, and this boar squares up... Puts herself between me and her kids, and we both agree I'm way too close to her, but she is much more upset about it than I am, and starts charging. And with just the last of my strength, I have to run backwards and run around a tree, and I'm just waiting for my first day to end being gored. And it quiets down. The board did her job. She clearly won. And so I turn the corner, she's gone, but I've also used up all of my energy. And so by the time I get to the temple, I just fall on the steps. And then out of the absolute pure charity that this island would show me sometimes, as I'm trying to set up my tent at the base of the stairs, a monk shows up and puts me in my backpack into his van and takes me so that I can stay on the temple grounds inside and gives me a little bit of food, which I was very grateful for. But I ended my first day thinking, you know, this is an adventure already and this could be great. And you know, this will probably happen every night that uh, I just get taken care of. And it didn't.
0: In fact, it got exponentially more difficult from here. It became almost impossible for him to find a good place to sleep. There are small rest huts set up for pilgrims along the way. But he didn't speak Japanese. He was having trouble reading the map and signs. He couldn't ask for directions. And oftentimes, he just couldn't find them or he couldn't reach them. So he had to improvise. He slept on park benches, shuttered up schools, abandoned amusement parks. He even slept downwind of a garbage tip at one point. But that wasn't the biggest problem. Paul's a fit guy. He practices karate, but Japan was having a heat wave, the hottest heat wave since 1898. And he was struggling with the sheer endurance of it. Walking about 20 miles a day over steep terrain with a heavy pack in 100 plus degrees Fahrenheit, that is not easy. And he felt it. While trying to reach the aptly named Burning Mountain Temple, where legend has it, Kukai fought off a dragon, he collapsed. He'd run out of water. He had no means of getting any more. He was dehydrated, suffering from mild heat stroke, and didn't think he was going to make it. And then he dragged himself a few more feet and collapsed again. And inch by inch like that, he fought his way to the top. But when he got there six hours later and fell to his knees offering those prayers, he knew that whatever happened from now on, he would make it. He would finish this whole thing. The first section was done. The only problem was the next section was the hardest of all. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle, Built for adventures everywhere. So, thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at nissanusa.com.
1: So, the next section is Kochi, the land of ascetic training. And this traditionally is known as the devil's country. Partially, this is because of how long it is. Kochi is about a third of the length of the entire pilgrimage, but only maybe 20% of its temples. So there are just long stretches beside the seaside and up and down mountains. But another fun fact about Kochi is that the locals used to be incredibly mean to people who showed up, and legendarily there was a huge pile of human shit that sat on the border between Kochi and the next region of Ahime, as whoever passed through gave their opinion of what they thought of the place. But for me, the locals were much nicer, uh, which was cool. So the main problem was the heat. Like, I never stopped sweating. And it's in Kochi where I start to realize that my shoes don't fit correctly. Like, every step, Is painful. And every step is painful to the point where I start to wonder if I'm going to walk normally again. And it was also beautiful. It was this ribbon that ran between the crashing Pacific and these vine covered hillsides where monkeys would screech out, birds would be chirping. And there were lighthouses along the way and fishermen casting into the sea and these beautiful beaches where people would surf and these hard candy bright houses just settled in and boats bobbing offshore and it was such a challenge because it was beautiful and at the same time i was in so much pain and it was so hard that it just could I couldn't find the balance. But the struggle to
0: find that balance is also the point. Ascetic training in Japan was explained to me by one of its practitioners as testing yourself with physical endurance and hardship in order to attain spiritual insight and enlightenment. For many Japanese mountain ascetics or Shugendo monks, as they can also be known, this means meditating under freezing waterfalls in the middle of winter and crazy things like that but it can also be attained through other means like hiking ridiculously long distances with ill-fitting shoes in the middle of a world record heat wave, for example. The point is, as I understand it, it's not about what you do. It's about immersing yourself, your entire body and being in the natural world to the point where due to that extreme exertion, the mind empties and you begin to see the world as it really is without the filter of the ego. The point is Enlightenment can be found outside as well as within. But that doesn't come easy. In fact, it comes hard. But that struggle between the beauty and the pain, the desire for escape and the desire to be present, is at the heart of all meditation, spiritual practice and pilgrimage too.
1: I couldn't find food. My brain was dying from the heat. And I remember... I passed by a 1950s style diner. And at first I didn't believe it, but then I double checked and yeah, it's a 1950s style diner restaurant in the middle of Japan. And I race in there ready to cause a hamburger shortage and ring the bell and no one answers. And I start looking around and it is a 1950s style restaurant. There's Marilyn Monroe and Elvis on the walls and the check tablecloths and the vinyl seats and little race cars, and I ding it again, and no one answers. And that's when I start looking a little closer and seeing that there's a layer of dust on everything, and there's no sounds coming from the kitchen, which is when it hits me, I'm in a museum, and possibly the twilight zone. And so by the end of that day, I'm wiped. And I'm just, I'm trying to find a place to set up my tent, I'm way past consciousness at this point. I walk up through an orchard and find myself suddenly on this grassy college campus. And I think, I'll just sleep here. And then I see security guards walk by and think, no, I won't. So I have to keep going. And so I pass through the campus. I have no idea what anyone thinks I'm doing there. I have this tunnel vision just narrowing into just this little tube of static that i can see through and i come to a locked gate and it's too tall to climb up and i can't get through it because it's padlocked and i don't know what to do and so i turn around and go into this bathroom and just wash my face and let the rest of my brain cells die peacefully and in the reflection i see that the toilet stall doors go down to the floor and So I push all my stuff into the toilet stall, and I sit down. I'm just trying to think, like, what do I do? I can't go backwards. I can't go forwards. And the lights click off, and I think, this isn't the worst place to sleep. And then sometime later, the lights click back on, and I hear the security guards walking through and realize this is the worst place to sleep because I am now trespassing on private property in the most expensive country on earth. And so if I get caught, not only am I getting prosecuted, I'm going bankrupt. And so I freeze and they don't hear me and walk out. And I think, okay, I just got to stay up all night. But then the lights go out. And the next thing I know, I'm woken up again. The guards come back through and I'm so startled. I knock my walking staff into the toilet And inside that stall, that click of porcelain is deafening. And the guards stop right outside the door. And in this moment where I'm just frozen, my future is totally out of my hands, this bloom of compassion opens in my heart. And I realize that this situation has been shared by people throughout history. It's been shared by the besieged hiding from soldiers and from immigrants crossing the border. And for a moment, I just feel connected to the suffering of so many people. And then a moment later, I realize you're none of those things, Paul. You're a 28-year-old hiding in a toilet stall.
0: They don't find him though. And at 4am, he decides to make his move. It's plausible enough at this time that if he's caught on campus grounds, the guards won't think he's trespassing or trying to spend the night in a toilet stall and arrest him. They'll just think he's one of the pilgrims up for an early start. He leaves the bathroom, walks back up to that lock gate, just crossing his fingers it's open. And then, with the clear eyes of someone who slept a few hours and is not on the point of collapse, he looks to one side and right next to that locked gate is a wall so small that he could have stepped over it in a single stride. He didn't need to spend the night in a public toilet. He could have camped on a lovely field on the other side of that wall. And as he continued his walk through Kochi, that struggle to find the balance between being present, being mindful and grateful, and the flitting, chattering mind dragging him away remained. It got harder as the terrain got harder and the weather hotter and his feet more in pain. But he stuck with it, believing in that ascetic training, meditating every morning and night and while he walked, practicing karate, And eventually, something happened.
1: No matter how hard I tried, my motivation was changing from be here now to get done faster. And as I'm nearing the end of Kochi, there's this moment as I'm walking by a rice field, staring at the ground, just thinking, I need to get to this rest hut. Where is this rest hut? And I look up and I see that the sky is filled. With these red dragonflies, just these gems in a galaxy around me, flittering around. And I just have this moment where I'm embarrassed and ashamed. Because how many of these moments have passed by as I was staring at the ground, wanting this to be over faster? How many of these dragonflies that I missed just because I was having such a hard time appreciating it? And More than that, I just felt lucky, lucky to be here, lucky to be alive, and knowing that I was sharing this moment with people throughout history, like all the pilgrims who stopped here at this point, on this day, and saw this miracle. And from that point on, I vowed that I would appreciate this pilgrimage, that I would not stare at the ground anymore, and that I would focus on being here now. And then five minutes later, I saw the exact same thing and thought, where is that rest hut? My feet are killing me.
0: It's so true, isn't it? So honest. That's exactly what it's like. There are dragonflies and beauty everywhere. There is always enlightenment. It's all around us. And there is always pain, always things that drag us away. And it's impossible to hold on to those moments of realization. But perhaps making peace with that struggle is in itself a start, and what pilgrimage as a practice is teaching us and teaching Paul. He didn't have a huge epiphany at the end of Kochi. The dragonflies didn't lead him into a blissful state of eternal nirvana. But he has this phrase that he uses in the book, a kind of realization, good enough. And there's something I love about that. Because it speaks to the humility that is at the foundation of gratitude and presence. That thing that we all seek. To notice the wonder and miracle of the little things around us. The little miracles. And to be grateful for them in that moment. And not be so busy and obsessed with the big goals and big achievements. And what's next? That we simply pass them by. Good enough. He'd made it through the devil's country. Ahimi, the land of enlightenment, is now on the horizon.
1: So I enter Ahime knowing that I am over the physical challenge of this pilgrimage. Yeah, it's not ever going to be easy, but I've been on this journey for three weeks at that point. My body is trail ready. My back has doubled in size. My legs are corded with muscle. I can go anywhere. And so I think I'm very ready for this. And also, I am now open. This is the land of enlightenment. Things are going to be incredible for me. And I have that attitude up until I get to this one temple that is gorgeous. It looks like one of the surrounding cedar trees dropped a seed and a temple grew from it instead of a tree. And I'm thinking this temple is amazing. And so I say my prayers, and then I see that there's the edge of the temple platform, there's about a two-foot alleyway, and then a raised earth platform with a stone wall where there's a Tory gate. And people put stones on the Tory gates and make wishes there. And I think, this is the temple that wishes come true. And so it's only two feet. And I figure, I can jump that. I don't need to walk down the stairs. Midway in the air, between the sound of the board I was jumping off of snapping and the rock wall approaching way too fast, I realized that Indiana Jones lied to me because ancient temples are not good leaping platforms. That wood is very old. And so I hit the rock wall with my shin. I fall down. I look down at my leg, it's bleeding, and I think, that's not good. And so I rush over, like finish the prayers, and race into the woods like a coward, because I don't know how much ancient temples cost. And then karma decides to teach me a lesson, as my leg starts to get a little red. And since I don't have health insurance... I can't go to the hospital because that's the end of the pilgrimage, and I can't afford medical care. You know, I'm an American. So I'm walking temple to temple, I'm freaking out, and that's when I run into the first white person I've seen in a month. And, you know, being the calm and collected person that I am, I look up and say, holy shit, does this look infected to you? And put my leg up on the railing. And she looks at it and goes, yes yeah, you should go to a hospital. That is, that is infected. And so I spend this really sad night in an onsen. I pay for my room and I think, well, you know, there's no point in camping out tonight because the pilgrimage is over. I get to the hospital and the doctor takes a look at my leg. And then gives me the antibiotics and some antibacterial swabs and sends me to the front desk. You know, I watch the bill print out. She hands it over. It's 4,700 yen, which is about 58 American dollars. And I just think, fuck the American medical system. For everyone
0: listening who basically lives anywhere else in the world, in America, without insurance, That appointment would have pillaged the last of his budget and ended his pilgrimage. But it didn't. Shikoko was back on. He passed beautiful temples as the miles flowed by, now up to the 50s of the 88 required of the journey. Ishteji, the Stonehand Temple, an enormous courtyard of statues and scrolls with spirals of cedarwood incense filling the air. Taisanji, the big mountain temple, steep and endless stairs leading to a main hall carved in ornate patterns of polished selkova wood. He recited his prayers, made his offerings and continued on his way. His legs slowly healed. He hopped less. He stopped jumping off temple walls. But dreams of fighting monks faded. It was now just about getting through it, about finding those moments, accepting what the pilgrimage
1: had to teach him. Until, well until it wasn't. So I credit a lot of things to me continuing to do the pilgrimage despite the physical challenges. One of them is that I practice kyokushin karate, which is a very hard style of karate that focuses a lot on physical conditioning and bare-fisted fighting. And so I would practice every night to make sure that I didn't lose any skill. And as I'm walking up this temple at night. It's one of the mountaintop temples. And my leg is, you know, healing. At least it's not getting any redder or larger. And I'm feeling okay. And it's this beautiful temple, just stunning courtyard, flat. You can see the mountains surrounding you. And I go and pray at the shrine. And as I finish the prayers, the priest looks at me and says, he said the sutras very well. And I said, oh, thank you. And then he says, why are your arms so big? Because at that point, I'd been preparing for a very hard karate test and also had been unable to find food consistently for, I think, a month at that point. So I was muscle and nothing else. But I also don't know how to say, where are your grocery stores in Japanese? So I go with my normal answer and go, I do Kyokushin. And he says, oh, I do gojiru, black belt. And I look at him and he looks at me and we just share that moment. And I raise my fists and ask, kumate, which means fight. And he nods and says, kumate. And so I take off my pilgrim gear. He takes off his monk robes, we square up, And beneath the twilight sky of Shikoku Island, in the courtyard of a mountaintop temple, I get into a 10 to 15 minute karate match, full contact with a priest, 32 days into this Buddhist pilgrimage. And so we're just going at it, fists are flying, kicks are coming, we're dodging, we're blocking, we're making contact. And I think I went deaf from how loud five-year-old Paul was applauding in my head. His granite
0: fists slip past my blocks to jolt my ribcage, he writes. I slide back and we circle each other, leaving smeared arcs across the courtyard. Deaf feet slip him past my darting jabs, and two solid hooks below my armpit hunch me to the side. He's controlling the fight with speed. I can't match this, I need distance. Leaving my jab overextended, he takes the bait and slides in front of me, I launch a knee into his sternum to shove him back, ram his gut with a straight kick to keep him off balance, and land a roundhouse into his thigh. He steps back, shakes the knot from his quadricep, and nods. We bow in again, raise our fists, and continue. How cool is that? After the fight, Paul's actually asked to join a goma fire ceremony in the temple. He sits on his knees with other henro pilgrims as taiko drums beat deep bass rhythms into the forest and they chant together from the holy sutras. That wizened old man may not have appeared from the woods with a samurai sword in hand, but when the moment arrived, he was ready. And the end was now in sight.
1: So after Ahime, I reached Kagawa, which is the shortest section. And the pilgrimage just kind of wound down. I circled back to Temple One. And for the entire time I'd been there, from the first day, it felt like I'd been there for years. Like, that there had been a time before this that I didn't think of much and then suddenly I'd been here forever on this journey. And I said the final prayers and then I caught a ferry out And as I looked back, I saw these mountains that I'd struggled over shrinking, and I saw the trails that I'd walked disappearing and shortening, and realized that was only 42 days, but it had also been forever. But when the pilgrimage ends, or before it begins, the last thing you have to do is you have to go to Mount Koya on the mainland. And that is where Kukai rests in eternal meditation in his mausoleum. And so the final day of the pilgrimage, I walk through this ancient cemetery. It's 1,500 years old, and it's all shaded by these massive cedar trees. And I walk through slowly, and I get to the lantern temple just in time for the morning ceremony. And underneath thousands of lanterns, I watch a monk silently go through the ritual and I silently witness it still trying to think of what to say because before you go or after you finish you have to report to Kukai about the journey and I get there and I don't know what to say and I start thinking about the whole journey everything that happened, the good things, the bad things, the parts I'd remember, the parts I would forget and I just realize that I've been repeating thank you Over and over again, and so I think that has to be enough. He'd reach the end
0: and come back to where he began forty-two days previously. Different, change from the experience, of course, as all big life experiences do. In some way or another, stronger, better shoes, perhaps more confident of his abilities of himself, perhaps a little wiser too, but also the same. Also, no big epiphany. He had moments of bliss and awakening they were fleeting. Much more omnipresent was the struggle. And so it should be. And so it always is. Pilgrimages, like life, should present a challenge. They shouldn't be easy. The challenge is the point. It's why you go. Because in that struggle, in the overcoming, is where the insight comes. But Paul has an interesting take on it too. He went to Shikoko expecting a certain kind of insight answers for what to do with his life, for peace with himself, for clarity on his path. That was a mistake, he says, because in truth, you don't know what answers will arrive, what wisdom the journey will teach you. Don't define your journey while you're still on it, he says. Don't go into travel saying, this is what I want to have happen and this is what will happen, because while you're looking for that one thing that may or may not happen, you'll miss out on everything else that's equally valuable and important. That's a great message and one that we don't often hear when it comes to travel. We talk about how life-changing it can be and it often is but often in ways we couldn't have predicted before we left. And that, I think, is Paul's message from this trip. The answers are there as long as you keep your eyes and heart and mind open to what the universe wants to show you and what it showed him And what he was thankful for in the end was not what he should aim for in the future,
1: but what was all around him right now. Because I spend so much time meditating, I'd meditate in the morning, I'd meditate in the evening, I'd meditate while I was walking. For a couple of times, I would suddenly have reality shift to the point where I not only saw myself In Shikoku, I saw myself as a part of the landscape, as indistinguishable. There was me, there was the mountains, there was the rice fields in between, there was the birds, there was the water, and it was all close and clear and equally in focus. Just, I was one thread of fabric in this tapestry. I realized that I, would not remember most of this pilgrimage. I wouldn't remember the moments in between. It was just this very strong moment of realizing, you will forget this. You will forget most of this as time goes on. And no matter how many photos you take, you know, how detailed your journal is, these things will slip by and you just need to let it go. And for the first time, everything became clear And everything became precious because it was going to disappear. It would disappear behind me. It would disappear into the past. And I totally detached from trying to remember it all. And that moment I was perhaps more at peace than I had ever been on the entire pilgrimage. Just for the realization that everything is fleeting and everything is incredible and you just need to accept it in the moment and let it pass this moment
0: right now whatever you're doing whatever you're looking about thinking about it's already passed and will soon be forgotten most of the moments of your life most of those small wonders will disappear you'll never remember them again they are like grains of sand slipping between your fingers but that's not a sad thing that's an amazing thing Because it makes each moment precious and unique. It makes each moment, however seemingly mundane and everyday, filled with wonder. It makes each moment something to savor and be grateful for. It makes each moment good enough. There are dragonflies everywhere, all around us, if we just open our eyes, open our hearts, and see. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for taking us on this pilgrimage with you. 750 miles and 88 temples around the whole of Shikoko Island. The book of his journey is called Fighting Monks in Burning Mountains Misadventures on a Buddhist Pilgrimage. I'll link to it. It's available on ebook, audiobook, and print. And please also go and connect with him on Instagram. He's a cool guy and a lot of fun to hang out with at Barrack Outdoors. That's B A R A C H Outdoors. The sound editing for this episode was done by my man, Mike Cumber. He's an awesome musician and producer. The title track for this show, Rummage, that opens every single episode, is written and performed by him. He's one of my favorite musicians. And he goes by the name The Sweet Chat for his own music stuff. Just search that up on Spotify or SoundCloud. And check out his Instagram and Facebook too. He posts amazing videos of cover songs and his own original material. I think he's got one of the most beautiful voices that you'll ever hear here. The Instagram is the underscore sweet underscore chap and the Facebook is simply at sweet chap. No the. Last but not least, if you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it. Check out a few more, subscribe and follow the show. Be a part of this community. If you love the outdoors and adventure and the pure joy of exploring this amazing planet, you're in the right place. So keep looking for those dragonflies because the more that we look for wonder in the world the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive.